Well, two weeks ago, we turned to this passage in Philippians 4 to consider the peace of God. And I shared with you how God led me to this passage while I was on vacation. I was anxious about many things, remember? I was unsettled and restless when God gave me these verses and brought me peace. Philippians chapter 4, verses 4 through 9, deal with peace, with the peace of God and with the God of peace. Verse 7, this is a bit of a review. Verse 7 is a promise from God. It's the promise of peace. It follows, of course, verses 4 through 6, which I referred to as the pathway to peace in that we are to rejoice in the Lord at all times, be gentle or reasonable with all people, and pray in all things with thanksgiving to God. And as we do, verses 4, 5, and 6, we experience the promise of verse 7, for God's protective, all-surpassing peace in Christ is most definitely yours as you trust and follow Christ. Well, whereas verse 7 highlights the peace of God, we see this morning that verse 9 highlights the God of peace. Verse 7 is about being protected by God's peace, while verse 9 is about being present with God Himself. In verse 7, the the peace of God guards our hearts and minds. In verse 9, the God of peace walks with us. So having already considered the peace of God from verses 4 through 7, I want to consider today with you the God of peace from verses 8 and 9. Paul's intent here is that we live in relationship with God and therefore enjoy peace with the God of peace. In our fallen state, we are at war with God, not peace. But through Jesus Christ, who is the Prince of Peace, we can have peace with God, the peace of God, comes to us in and through Christ, and the God of peace walks with us because of Christ. As with the previous passage, you'll see that this too is a call to action. These verses, 8 and 9, are calling us to center our thoughts on that which is excellent and praiseworthy and to conduct ourselves accordingly. They call us to learn from the godly example of those around us and to practice godliness ourselves. And as we ponder and practice these things, we enjoy God's presence. This is the promise of verse 9, that the God of peace will be with you. This morning I want to consider what it is we are to ponder. What is it? And what is it that we're to practice? And How does doing these things effectively lead us to Jesus and assure us of the presence of God? For we are present with God, with the God of peace, as we ponder Christ 
and practice the life of Christ each day. That's where we're going. First, what to ponder. The battle for peace and peace with God is often won or lost in the mind. What we think about on a regular basis affects how we respond to the circumstances of life and to God who grants us life. Our thought life affects our ability to rejoice in the Lord, both positively and otherwise. It affects how we interact with others. It affects how we pray and what we pray for. What we dwell on affects what we do. That's no surprise. So in verse 8, we are urged to ponder certain things, things excellent and praiseworthy. Let's read it again. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. It's a beautiful statement, isn't it? I can almost picture it on a postcard or in a nice frame hanging on the wall. It has a certain ring to it, a a poetic feel, and it calls us to higher living. But it's much more than mere feelings, mere sentimentality. It's much more than thinking good thoughts or the power of positive thinking. It's much, much more than that. This instruction to think about these things really means to evaluate them, to mull and contemplate them, to take them into account, to give them their proper weight and allow their value to influence your life. It really means to calculate the virtue of these things and live accordingly. Paul lists six specific qualities. We are to think about and dwell on that which is true and honorable and just and pure and lovely and commendable. And then it's as if Paul realizes he could go on and on listing virtue after virtue. So he then just encapsulates them all with with two summary clauses. He, He lists these six things and then he says simply and summarily, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. These summary statements encompass, I think, all the qualities already mentioned as well as other similar qualities that easily could be mentioned. And so we won't, we won't take the time this morning to unpack each of these six things, though, I, though that would be a good exercise. But the overarching point is to center our thoughts on that which is excellent. 
to center our thoughts on that which is praiseworthy. What are you thinking about today? What's the state of your thought life this morning? Even right now, is it characterized by these things? Are, are these the things you give your mind to consistently? If the TV program doesn't pass through this filter, turn it off. If the web page uh, compromises this standard, shut down the computer. If the song creates conflict with these qualities, erase it from your iTunes library. Again, Paul's intent here is relationship with God. So is your thought life helping or hurting that relationship? Is your thought life helping or hurting that relationship? Is it garbage in, garbage out? Or are you being transformed day by day by the renewal of your mind? And there's an important distinction to be made here. Not explicitly stated, but, but one I think we can infer from the text. I think we must realize that Paul isn't speaking in relative terms. He isn't suggesting that you ponder what's true for you while I ponder what's true for me. He isn't asking that we think about honor or purity or beauty as we individually define it. He isn't calling us to grade these qualities on the curve of our own opinions. Just molding and informing them around whatever makes us happy at any given moment. No. What Paul is doing here is he's calling us to a higher standard, to the standard of truth and honor and justice and purity and loveliness and all that's commendable. He's calling us to dwell on these things, not as we define them, but as God does. So that we're shaped by them and not the other way around. And so I want to therefore suggest that in effect, He's actually calling us to Christ. Jesus Christ is the source. Jesus Christ is the means of all things excellent and praiseworthy. Do you believe that this morning? Listen, even things that aren't necessarily, quote, Christian, 
can effectively lead us to Christ. In other words, we don't need, we don't need this pressure. We don't need, to, we don't need to be the label police. We don't need to put a Christian label on everything that's true or honorable or just, though certainly, make no mistake, all truth, all honor, all justice speaks of Christ. We can, we can appreciate purity and loveliness and all that's commendable, knowing that such things ultimately come from and point to Jesus, even if they aren't explicitly, quote, Christian. We can appreciate beauty and excellence in all its forms. We can applaud, for example, the concert pianist whose fingers dance across the keys and make music that stops us in our tracks and stirs something divine within us. We can admire the artist who captures our imagination with unbelievable skill and precision and beckons us to the divine. Have you seen Michelangelo's Sistine Chapel? We can stand on top of a mountain peak and be left speechless by the wonder of creation. Because it all points to the Creator. All, all that is excellent and praiseworthy is from God and points to Christ. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created. All things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. Colossians 1. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. No one has ever seen God, the only God, Jesus Christ, who is at the Father's side. He has made Him known, John 1. There is one God from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ through whom are all things and through whom we exist, 1 Corinthians 8. For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever. Amen? Amen. That's Romans 11. And what this means for you in practical terms is this. Centering your thoughts on that which is excellent and praiseworthy on anything that is excellent on anything that is worthy of praise is meant to stir your wonder and worship of Christ. Right? So we, we, we're at the piano concert and we're amazed by the pianist and our amazement leads us to Jesus and we praise Christ for gifts like that. In a sense, Paul is calling us to ponder the glory of Christ in all things. In all things true. In all things honorable. In all things just. 
in all things pure, in all things lovely, in all things commendable, in whatever is excellent or praiseworthy, we're to ponder and glory in Christ. So again, how is your relationship with Jesus informing and changing the way you think? In what ways are you centering your thoughts on him tomorrow when you return to work or school? Listen, tomorrow when you return to work or school, what will your thought life reveal about your love for Jesus? Scripture says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. It says to take every thought captive and make it obedient to Christ. It says that as Christians, we have the mind of Christ. So in anything excellent or worthy of praise, would you ponder and praise Jesus? Are you with me? Do we need to stretch? <laughs> All right. And then I want you to notice. So we're going to go from what to ponder to want to pract- what to practice. And so I want you to notice the relation between what we ponder and what we practice. Verse 9 says, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. So the goal isn't simply to fill your mind with information, no matter how great that information may be. No, the goal is to live accordingly. The goal is... It's not simply that we recognize Jesus as the source and means of all things excellent. It's that we actually glory in Jesus. The revelation you receive is meant to change how you live. It's meant to become habituated into your attitudes and into your thought processes and into the patterns of your daily life. The problem with some people, right... The problem with some people, even some professing Christians, is that what they believe and how they live never seem to jive. They know what's right and even believe certain truths about God, but those beliefs, as true as they may be, never seem to truly affect how they live. And here, and you know, there are many passages like this one. Here, the scripture is is calling us to act on what we know, to practice what we believe. Isn't that what makes some believers so winsome, so attractive, so compelling? They apply what they know, right? They practice what they ponder. They glory in God and therefore they glorify God. And in so doing, they serve as great and godly examples to us. So Paul says, what you have learned and and received and heard and seen in me, 
practice these things. Earlier in this letter, in chapter 3, verse 17, he says similarly, uh, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Paul knew the gift of godly example. And hear this. He saw himself as an example for others. This isn't pride on his part. Not at all. This was a way of serving them by being for them. Someone they could learn from and look up to. We need people like this. And I've shared with you before that, that I've been tremendously blessed by godly examples. Over the years, God has brought into my life men and women who by word and deed inspire me. I mean that. Inspire me to live for Jesus. Some, some of these men and women, I, I, it may have just been a one-time encounter. Some were people who invested in me over long periods of time. Some were more academic and doctrinally structured. Some were much more casual, but equally theological. Some are seated in this very room. And I'm very, very thankful. And I've had pastoral examples as well. Pastor Kent Carlson was instrumental in leading me to the Lord. And God used him to break, really to shatter, the stereotypes I held at that time that suggested that being a Christian meant having no fun. The more time I spent with him and observed him from a distance, the more I learned that the Christian life is the most rewarding, most fulfilling, most truly joy-inducing life imaginable. Pastor Billy Steen modeled for me the vital importance of the pastor's study. He gave well over 20 hours per week, week after week, year after year, meeting, in God, meeting with God in God's word, praying for God's people, asking the Lord for help to bring God's message. I'm forever grateful. Pastors Bob Hughes and Lee Toms 
modeled for me the vital importance of, lo- of a long-term view in ministry, of being faithful in the little things day after day while leaving the results to God. Even today, I, I, I meet with other pastors on a semi-regular basis, men who are further along than me, who remind me by their example and their experience that there's nothing new under the sun. Our joys are their joys. Their struggles are our struggles. We all share the same trials. We share the same triumphs as God perfects His work in our churches and in the lives of those who comprise our churches, including ourselves. I cannot begin to tell you what a blessing these godly examples have been for me over the years. And so the application here is twofold. Please hear this. First, learn, learn, learn from those around you. Are you teachable? Are you teachable? Are you pliable? and workable whereas the saying goes are you set in your ways can you admit are you are you willing to admit that there may be someone else who may know more than you Someone whom God intends to bring into your life? And would you be willing to follow their example? I want you to consider the men and women in your life who obviously love the Lord. I mean, there's no question, right? They obviously love the Lord. And I'm asking you to learn from them, observe them, listen to them, receive from them, interact with them, and follow their example. And and listen, in fact, you may even ask them. Oh, this, this takes some courage. I've done it myself. You may even ask them to meet with you and begin to mentor you. That's the first point of application. The second is this. Would you be an example for others? Learn from godly examples and be a godly example yourself. Give to someone else what God has given you. Give to someone else what God has given you. Look for opportunities to come alongside another and encourage them in the Lord. Be willing to listen to their joys and heartaches and when appropriate to remind them of God's many promises. I want to speak directly to the older men and the older women. 
I want to ask you, as the scripture tells us, will you pour in to our young men and our young women? I'm asking the older men and the older women, will you invest yourself with our young men and with our young women? Will you befriend? Will you befriend our teens and our 20-somethings? Or maybe those who are a generation or two behind you? Will you take interest in their lives and in what God is doing in their lives? The point is that we can give the gift of a godly example. We can give the gift of a godly example as we look to those who are examples for us and as we put godliness into practice. And by the way, that we are to practice these things, what does that imply? That implies continual growth, right? It implies the fact that we're always growing. We never have quite attained the highest possible level. We ponder Christ in all things excellent and praiseworthy, and we practice Christian living day by day, always growing, continuously maturing, appropriating each day the life of Christ in any given situation. Look for an example, a godly example. And like the Apostle Paul and others, be an example. And finally, we'll close with this. Please see the relation between practice between what we practice, so there's a relationship between what we ponder and what we practice. And now here in verse 9, we see a relationship between what we practice and peace. In that Paul says simply, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. We know from other scriptures that, that peace with God requires grace from God. I said uh, that in our fallen state, we're at war with God, not peace. So if we're to be at peace with God, or if the God of peace is to walk with us, then someone must make peace between us and him. And that someone is, of course, none other than Jesus Christ, the Lord. Jesus Christ. The Bible says that Christ himself is our peace. That's Ephesians 2.14. Peace with God is thus realized, listen, as we receive the Lord and as we rest in his finished work on our behalf. He is the head of the body. This is also Colossians 1. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself 
all things, whether on earth or in heaven, listen, making peace by the blood of his cross. Verses 4 through 7 teach about the protective, all-surpassing peace of God. And here this morning, verses 8 and 9, teach about being present with the God of peace. And in both cases, we're reminded of the centrality of Jesus Christ who is our peace and who makes peace between us and God through his atoning death and his subsequent resurrection from the dead. This is the Christian gospel. This is why Christ came. We who were lost in our sins and separated from God, we who rebelled against God can enjoy peace with God through faith in Jesus Christ, whom God has given in love. And to be at peace with God is true peace, right? It's true wholeness. It's true shalom. Because as God blots out and removes sin from my life, as He welcomes me and walks with me, the strain and struggle to strive in my own strength dissipates. And I learn to rest in Christ and in His finished work for me. This is what's true and honorable and just. This is pure and lovely and commendable. This is excellent and worthy of praise. The news that God desires peace with me and that Christ has made peace for me reorients my entire life. We're a fidgety bunch this morning, aren't we? The news that God desires peace with me and that Christ has made peace for me reorients my entire life. This news is worth reorienting your entire life. Everything you ponder, everything you practice. This great news of the glorious gospel penetrates and, and affects the totality of our lives. And so, loved ones, my encouragement to you from the Word of God is simply to receive the peace of God today and walk with the God of peace as you rest and rejoice in Jesus our Lord.
Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the morning. Thank you for being faithful to your people and faithful to your word and faithful to your work to to redeem a people for yourself and then to redemptively perfect and sanctify us day by day. Thank you for the hope and joy and peace that is ours in Jesus Christ. And I just pray, Lord, I want to pray specifically for those among us this morning. who do not know this peace. Who do not know the peace of God and who certainly do not know in personal relationship the God of peace. And so, Father, would you be pleased even now Would you be pleased to open the eyes of their hearts and even their hearts themselves to see the Prince of Peace and to surrender their wills, their lives, and the totality of their lives to Him? from whom and through whom and to whom are all things. We praise you this morning because of Jesus.